Section 8 of Hunger by Knut Homsen, translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3 A week passed in glory and gladness. I had got over the worst this time, too. I had had food every day, and my courage rose, and I thrust one iron after the other into the fire. I was working at three or four articles that plundered my poor brain of every spark every thought that rose in it, and yet I fancied that I wrote with more facility than before. The last article with which I had raced about so much, and upon which I had built such hopes, had already been returned to me by the editor, and, angry and wounded as I was, I had destroyed it immediately, without even re-reading it again. In future I would try another paper, in order to open up more fields for my work. Supposing that writing were to fail, and the worst were to come to the worst, I still had the ships to take to. The nun lay alongside the wharf, ready to sail, and I might, perhaps, work my way out to Archangel, or wherever else she might be bound. There was no lack of openings on many sides. The last crisis had dealt rather roughly with me. My hair fell out in masses, and I was much troubled with headaches, particularly in the morning and my nervousness died a hard death. I sat and wrote during the day with my hands bound up in rags, simply because I could not endure the touch of my own breath upon them. If Yen's Olaj banged the stable door underneath me, or if a dog came into the yard and commenced to bark, it thrilled through my very marrow, like icy stabs, piercing me from every side. I was pretty well played out. Day after day I strove at my work begrudging myself the short time it took to swallow my food before I sat down again to write. At this time both the bed and the little rickety table were strewn over with notes and written pages, upon which I worked turn about, added any new ideas which might have occurred to me during the day, erased or quickened here and there the dull points by a word of color, fagged and toiled at sentence after sentence, with the greatest of pains. One afternoon, one of my articles being at length finished, I thrust it, contented and happy, into my pocket, and betook myself to the Commodore. It was high time I made some arrangement towards getting a little money again. I had only a few pence left. The Commodore requested me to sit down for a moment. He would be disengaged immediately, and he continued writing. I looked about the little office. Busts, prints, cuttings and an enormous paper basket that looked as if it might swallow a man, bones and all. I felt sad at heart at the sight of this monstrous chasm, this dragon's mouth, that always stood open, always ready to receive rejected work, newly crushed hopes. "'What day of the month is it?' queried the Commodore from the table. "'The twenty-eighth, I reply, pleased that I can be of service to him. "'The twenty-eighth and he continues writing. At last he encloses a couple of letters in their envelopes, tosses some papers into the basket, and lays down his pen. Then he swings round on his chair and looks at me. Observing that I am still standing near the door, he makes a half-serious, half-playful motion with his hand, and points to a chair. I turn aside, so that he may not see that I have no waistcoat on, when I open my coat to take the manuscript out of my pocket. It is only a little character sketch of Correggio, I say, 
but perhaps it is, worse luck, not written in such a way that— He takes the papers out of my hand, and commences to go through them. His face is turned towards me. And so it is thus he looks at close quarters, this man, whose name I had already heard in my earliest youth, and whose paper had exercised the greatest influence on me as the years advanced. His hair is curly, and his beautiful brown eyes are a little restless. He has a habit of tweaking his nose now and then. No Scottish minister could look milder than this truculent writer, whose pen always left bleeding scars wherever it attacked. A peculiar feeling of awe and admiration comes over me in the presence of this man. The tears are on the point of coming to my eyes, and I advanced a step to tell him how heartily I appreciated him, for all he had taught me, and to beg him not to hurt me. I was only a poor bungling wretch, who had had a sorry enough time of it as it was. He looked up and placed my manuscript slowly together, whilst he sat and considered. To make it easier for him to give me a refusal, I stretch out my hand a little and say, Ah, oh, well, of course, it is not of any use to you. And I smile to give him the impression that I take it easily. Everything has to be of such a popular nature to be of any use to us, he replies. You know the kind of public we have. But can't you try to write something a little more commonplace, or hit upon something that people understand better? His forbearance astonishes me. I understand that my article is rejected, and yet I could not have received a prettier refusal. Not to take up his time any longer, I reply, Oh, yes, I dare say I can. I go towards the door. Hem, he must pray forgive me for having taken up his time with this. I bow and turn the door handle. If you need it, he says, you are welcome to draw a little in advance. You can write for it, you know. Now, as he had just seen that I was not capable of writing, this offer humiliated me somewhat, and I answered, No thanks, I can pull through yet a while, thanking you very much all the same. Good day. Good day, replies the commandor, turning at the same time to his desk again. He had none the less treated me with undeserved kindness, and I was grateful to him for it, and I would know how to appreciate it, too. I made a resolution not to return to him until I could take something with me that satisfied me perfectly, something that would astonish the commandor a bit, and make him order me to be paid half a sovereign without a moment's hesitation. I went home and tackled my writing once more. During the following evenings, as soon as it got near eight o'clock and the gas was lit, the following thing happened regularly to me. As I come out of my room to take a walk in the streets after the labor and troubles of the day, a lady, dressed in black, stands under the lamp-post exactly opposite my door. She turns her face towards me and follows me with her eyes when I pass her by. I remark that she always has the same dress on always the same thick veil that conceals her face and falls over her breast, and that she carries in her hand a small umbrella with an ivory ring in the handle. This was already the third evening I had seen her there, always in the same place. As soon as I have passed her by, she turns slowly and goes down the street away from me. My nervous brain vibrated with curiosity, and I became at once possessed by the unreasonable feeling that I was the object of her visit. 
At last I was almost on the point of addressing her, of asking her if she was looking for anyone, if she needed my assistance in any way, or if I might accompany her home. Badly dressed, as I unfortunately was, I might protect her through the dark streets, but I had an undefined fear that it might perhaps cost me something, a glass of wine or a drive, and I had no money left at all. My distressingly empty pockets acted in a far too depressing way upon me, and I had not even the courage to scrutinize her sharply as I passed her by. Hunger had once more taken up its abode in my breast, and I had not tasted food since yesterday evening. This, tis true, was not a long period. I had often been able to hold out for a couple of days at a time, but latterly I had commenced to fall off seriously. I could not go hungry one quarter as well as I used to do. A single day made me feel dazed, and I suffered from perpetual retching the moment I tasted water. Added to this was the fact that I lay and shivered all night, lay fully dressed as I stood and walked in the daytime, lay blue with cold, lay and froze every night with fits of icy shivering, and grew stiff during my sleep. The old blanket could not keep out the draughts, and I woke in the mornings with my nose stopped by the sharp outside frosty air which forced its way into the dilapidated room. I go down the street and think over what I am to do to keep myself alive until I get my next article finished. If I only had my candle I would try to fag on through the night. It would only take a couple of hours if I once warmed to my work, and then tomorrow I could call on the Commodore. I go, without further ado, into the Opland Café, and look for my young acquaintance in the bank, in order to procure a penny for a candle. I passed unhindered through all the rooms. I passed a dozen tables at which men sat chatting, eating and drinking. I passed into the back of the café, I, even into the red alcove, without succeeding in finding my man. Crestfallen and annoyed, I dragged myself out again into the street and took the direction to the palace. Wasn't it now, the very hottest eternal devil existing, to think that my hardships never would come to an end? Taking long, furious strides, with the collar of my coat hunched savagely up round my ears, and my hands thrust in my breeches' pockets, I strode along, cursing my unlucky stars the whole way. Not one real untroubled hour in seven or eight months not the common food necessary to hold body and soul together for the space of one short week, before want stared me in the face again. Here I had, into the bargain, gone and kept straight and honorable all through my misery. Ha, ha! Straight and honorable to the heart's core. God preserve me, what a fool I had been! And I commenced to tell myself how I had even gone about conscience-stricken, because I had once brought Hans Polly's blanket to the pawnbroker's. I laughed sarcastically at my delicate rectitude, spat contemptuously into the street, and could not find words half strong enough to mock myself for my stupidity. Let it only happen now. Were I to find at this moment a schoolgirl's savings, or a poor widow's only penny, I would snatch it up and pocket it, steal it deliberately, and sleep the whole night through like a top. I had not suffered so unspeakably much for nothing, 
My patience was gone. I was prepared to do anything. I walked round the palace three, perhaps four times, then came to the conclusion that I would go home, took yet one little turn in the park, and went back down Karl Johann. It was now about eleven. The streets were fairly dark, and the people roamed about in all directions, quiet pairs and noisy groups mixed with one another. The great hour had commenced, the pairing time, when the mystic traffic is in full swing, and the hour of merry adventures sets in. Rustling petticoats, one or two still short, sensual laughter, heaving bosoms, passionate panting breaths, and far down near the Grand Hotel a voice calling, Emma! The whole street was a swamp, from which hot vapors exuded. I felt involuntarily in my pockets for a few shillings. The passion that thrills through the movements of every one of the passers-by, the dim lights of the gas-lamps, the quiet pregnant night, all commenced to affect me. This air that is laden with whispers, embraces, trembling admissions, concessions, half-uttered words and suppressed cries. A number of cats are declaring their love with loud yells in Blomquist's doorway, and I did not possess even a florin. It was a misery, a wretchedness without parallel to be so impoverished. What humiliation, too! What disgrace! I began again to think about the poor widow's last mite, that I would have stolen a schoolboy's cap or handkerchief, or a beggar's wallet, that I would have brought to a rag-dealer without more ado, and caroused with the proceeds. In order to console myself, to indemnify myself in some measure, I take to picking all possible faults in the people who glide by. I shrug my shoulders contemptuously, and look slidingly at them, according as they pass. These easily pleased, confectionery-eating students, who fancy they are sowing their wild oats in truly continental style, if they tickle a sempstress under the ribs. These young bucks, bank clerks, merchants, flaneurs, who would not disdain a sailor's wife, blousy mauls, ready to fall down in the first doorway for a glass of beer, what sirens! The place at their side still warm from the last night's embrace of a watchman or a stable-boy. The throne always vacant, always open to newcomers. Pray, mount! I spat out over the pavement, without troubling if it hit anyone. I felt enraged, filled with contempt for these people who scraped acquaintanceship with one another, and paired off right before my eyes. I lifted my head and felt in myself the blessing of being able to keep my own sty clean. At Stortingplads, Parliament Place, I met a girl who looked fixedly at me as I came close to her. Good night, said I. Good night, she stopped. Hum, was she out walking so late? Did not a young lady run rather a risk in being in Karl Johann at this time of night? Really not. Yes, but she was never spoken to, molested, I meant. To speak plainly, asked to go home with any one. She stared at me with astonishment scanned my face closely, to see what I really meant by this, then thrust her hand suddenly under my arm, and said, Yes, and we went, too. I walked on with her, 
but when we had gone a few paces past the car stand, I came to a standstill, freed my arm, and said, Listen, my dear, I don't own a farthing, and with that I went on. At first she would not believe me, but after she searched all my pockets and found nothing, she got vexed, tossed her head, and called me a dry cod. Good night, said I. Wait a minute, she called. Are those eyeglasses you've got gold? No. Then go to blazes with you, and I went. A few seconds after she came running behind me and called out to me, You can come with me all the same. I felt humiliated by this offer from an unfortunate street wench, and I said no. Besides, it was growing late at night, and I was due at a place. Neither could she afford to make sacrifices of that kind. Yes, but now I will have you come with me. But I won't go with you in this way. Oh, naturally, you are going with someone else. No, I answered. But I was conscious that I stood in a sorry plight in face of this unique street jade, and I made up my mind to save appearances at least. What is your name? I inquired. Mary A. Well, listen to me now, Mary. And I set about explaining my behavior. The girl grew more and more astonished in measure as I proceeded. Had she believed that I, too, was one of those who went about the streets at night and ran after little girls? Did she really think so badly of me? Had I perhaps said anything rude to her from the beginning? Did one behave as I had done when one was actuated by any bad motive? Briefly, in so many words, I had accosted her, and accompanied her those few paces to see how far she would go with it. For the rest, my name was so-and-so pastor so-and-so. Good night, depart, and sin no more. With these words I left her. I rubbed my hands with delight over my happy notion, and soliloquized aloud. What a joy there is in going about doing good actions! Perhaps I had given this fallen creature an upward impulse for her whole life. Save her, once for all, from destruction, and she would appreciate it when she came to think over it. Remember me in her hour of death with thankful heart. Ah, in truth it paid to be honorable, upright, and righteous. My spirits were effervescing. I felt fresh and courageous enough to face anything that might turn up. If I only had a candle, I might perhaps complete my article. I walked on, jingling my new door-key in my hand, hummed and whistled, and speculated as to means of procuring a candle. There was no other way out of it. I would have to take my writing materials with me into the street, under a lamp-post. I opened the door and went up to get my papers. When I descended once more I locked the door from the outside and planted myself under the light. All around was quiet. I heard the heavy clanking footsteps of a constable down in Tergod, and far away in the direction of St. Hans Hill a dog barked. There was nothing to disturb me. I pulled my coat collar up round my ears and commenced to think with all my might. It would be such an extraordinary help to me if I were lucky enough to find a suitable winding up for this little essay. I had stuck, just at a rather difficult point in it, where there ought to be a quite imperceptible transition to something fresh, then a subdued gliding finale, 
a prolonged murmur, ending at last in a climax as bold and as startling as a shot, or the sound of a mountain avalanche. Full stop. But the words would not come to me. I read over the whole piece from the commencement, read every sentence aloud, and yet failed absolutely to crystallize my thoughts in order to produce this scintillating climax. And into the bargain, whilst I was standing laboring away at this, the constable came and, planting himself a little distance away from me, spoilt my whole mood. Now, what concern was it of his if I stood and strove for a striking climax to an article for the Commodore? Lord, how utterly impossible it was for me to keep my head above water, no matter how much I tried. I stayed there for the space of an hour. The constable went his way. The cold began to get too intense for me to keep still. Disheartened and despondent over this abortive effort, I opened the door again and went up to my room. It was cold up there, and I could barely see my window for the intense darkness. I felt my way towards the bed, pulled off my shoes, and set about warming my feet between my hands. Then I lay down, as I had done for a long time now, with all my clothes on. The following morning I was up in bed as soon as it got light, and set to work at the essay once more. I sat thus till noon. I had succeeded by then in getting ten, perhaps twenty lines down, and still had not found an ending. I rose, put on my shoes, and began to walk up and down the floor to try and warm myself. I looked out. There was rime on the window. It was snowing. Down in the yard a thick layer of snow covered the paving stones and the top of the pump. I bustled about the room, took aimless turns to and fro, scratched the wall with my nail, lent my head carefully against the door for a while, tapped with my forefinger on the floor, and then listened attentively, all without object, but quietly and pensively, as if it were some matter of importance in which I was engaged and all the while I murmured aloud, time upon time, so that I could hear my own voice. But, great God, surely this is madness! Yet I kept on just as before. After a long time, perhaps a couple of hours, I pulled myself sharply together, bit my lips, and manned myself as well as I could. There must be an end to this. I found a splinter to chew, and set myself resolutely to again. A couple of short sentences formed themselves with much trouble. A score of poor words which I tutored forth with might and main to try and advance a little. Then I stopped. My head was barren. I was incapable of more. And, as I could positively not go on, I set myself to gaze with wide-open eyes at these last words, this unfinished sheet of paper. I stared at these strange shaky letters that bristled up from the paper, like small hairy creeping things, till at last I could neither make head nor tail of any of it. I thought on nothing. Time went. I heard the traffic in the street, the rattle of cars and tramp of hoofs. Jens Olaj's voice ascended towards me from the stables as he chid the horses. I was perfectly stunned. I sat and moistened my lips a little but otherwise made no effort to do anything. 
My chest was in a pitiful state. The dusk closed in. I sank more and more together, grew weary, and lay down on the bed again. In order to warm my fingers a little, I stroked them through my hair backwards and forwards and crosswise. Small loose tufts came away, flakes that got between my fingers and scattered over the pillow. I did not think anything about it just then. It was as if it did not concern me. I had hair enough left, anyway. I tried afresh to shake myself out of the strange daze that enveloped my whole being like a mist. I sat up, struck my knees with my flat hands, laughed as hard as my sore chest permitted me, only to collapse again. Naught availed. I was dying helplessly, with my eyes wide open, staring straight up at the roof. At length I stuck my forefinger in my mouth, and took to sucking it. Something stirred in my brain, a thought that bored its way in there, a stark mad notion. Supposing I were to take a bite, and without a moment's reflection I shut my eyes and clenched my teeth on it. I sprang up. At last I was thoroughly awake. A little blood trickled from it, and I licked it as it came. It didn't hurt very much, neither was the wound large, but I was brought at one bound to my senses. I shook my head, went to the window, where I found a rag, and wound it round the sore place. As I stood and busied myself with this, my eyes filled with tears. I cried softly to myself. This poor thin finger looked so utterly pitiable. God in heaven! What a pass it had come to now with me! The gloom grew closer. It was, maybe, not impossible that I might work up my finale through the course of the evening, if I only had a candle. My head was clear once more. Thoughts came and went as usual, and I did not suffer particularly. I did not even feel hunger so badly as some hours previously. I could hold out well till the next day. Perhaps I might be able to get a candle on credit, if I applied to the provision shop and explained my situation. I was so well known in there. In the good old days, when I had the means to do it, I used to buy many a loaf there. There was no doubt I could raise a candle on the strength of my honest name, and for the first time for ages I took to brushing my clothes a little, got rid as well as the darkness allowed me of the loose hairs on my collar and felt my way down the stairs. When I got outside in the street it occurred to me that I might perhaps rather ask for a loaf. I grew irresolute and stopped to consider. On no account, I replied to myself at last. I was, unfortunately, not in a condition to bear food. It would only be a repetition of the same old story, visions and presentiments and mad notions. My article would never get finished and it was a question of going to the Commodore before he had time to forget me. Oh, on no account whatever, and I decided upon the candle. With that I entered the shop. A woman is standing at the counter making purchases. Several small parcels in different sorts of paper are lying in front of her. The shopman, who knows me, and knows what I usually buy, leaves the woman and packs without much ado a loaf in a piece of paper 
and shoves it over to me. No, thank you. It was really a candle I wanted this evening. I say, I say it very quiet and humbly, in order not to vex him and spoil my chance of getting what I want. My answer confuses him. He turns quite cross at my unexpected words. It was the first time I had ever demanded anything but a loaf from him. Well, then, you must wait a while, he says at last, and busies himself with the woman's parcels again. She receives her wares and pays for them, gives him a florin, out of which she gets the change and goes out. Now the shop-boy and I are alone. He says, So it was a candle you wanted, eh? He tears open a package and takes out one for me. He looks at me, and I look at him. I can't get my request over my lips. Oh, yes, that's true. You paid, though, he says suddenly. He simply asserts that I had paid. I heard every word, and he begins to count some silver out of the till, coin after coin, shining stout pieces. He gives me back change for a crown. Much obliged, he says. Now I stand and look at these pieces of money for a second. I am conscious something is wrong somewhere. I do not reflect, do not think about anything at all. I am simply struck of a heap by all this wealth which is lying glittering before my eyes, and I gather up the money mechanically. I stand outside the counter, stupid with amazement, dumb, paralyzed. I take a stride towards the door and stop again. I turn my eyes upon a certain spot in the wall where a little bell is suspended to a leather collar, and underneath this bundle of string I stand and stare at these things. The shop-boy is struck by the idea that I want to have a chat, as I take my time so leisurely, and says, as he tidies a lot of wrapping papers strewn over the counter, It looks as if we were going to have winter snow. Hum, yes, I reply. It looks as if we were going to have winter in earnest now. It looks like it. And a while after, I add, Ah, oh, well, it is none too soon. I could hear myself speak, but each word I uttered struck my ear as if it were coming from another person. I spoke absolutely unwittingly, involuntarily, without being conscious of myself. Oh, do you think so? says the boy. I thrust the hand with the money into my pocket turned the door-handle, and left. I could hear that I said good-night, and that the shop-boy replied to me. I had gone a few paces away from the shop, when the shop-door was torn open, and the boy called after me. I turned round without any astonishment, without a trace of fear. I only collected the money into my hand, and prepared to give it back. "'Beg pardon, you've forgotten your candle,' says the boy. "'Ah!' Thanks, I answered quietly. Thanks, thanks. And I strolled on, down the street, bearing it in my hand. My first sensible thought referred to the money. I went over to a lamp-post, counted it, weighed it in my hand, and smiled. So, in spite of all, I was helped, extraordinarily, grandly, incredibly helped, helped for a long, long time and I thrust my hand with the money into my pocket, and walked on. Outside an eating-house in Grand Street, I stopped, and turned over in my mind, calmly and quietly, if I should venture so soon to take a little refreshment. 
I could hear the rattle of knives and plates inside, and the sound of meat being pounded. The temptation was too strong for me. I entered. A helping of beef, I say. One beef, calls the waitress down through the door to the lift. I sat down by myself at a little table next to the door and prepared to wait. It was somewhat dark where I was sitting, and I felt tolerably well concealed, and set myself to have a serious think. Every now and then the waitress glanced over at me inquiringly. My first downright dishonesty was accomplished, my first theft. Compared to this, all my earlier escapades were as nothing. My first great fall. Well and good. There was no help for it. For that matter, it was open to me to settle it with the shopkeeper later on, on a more opportune occasion. It need not go any farther with me. Besides that, I had not taken upon myself to live more honorably than all the other folk. There was no contract that— do you think that beef will be here soon? Yes, immediately. The waitress opens the trap-door and looks down into the kitchen. But suppose the affair did crop up some day. If the shop-boy were to get suspicious and begin to think over the transaction about the bread and the florin of which the woman got the change, it was not impossible that he would discover it some day, perhaps the next time I went there. Well, then— Lord, I shrugged my shoulders unobserved. If you please, says the waitress, kindly placing the beef on the table, wouldn't you rather go to another compartment? It's so dark here. No, thanks. Just let me be here, I reply. Her kindliness touches me at once. I pay for the beef on the spot, put whatever change remains into her hand, close her fingers over it, she smiles, and I say in fun, with the tears near my ears. There, you're to have the balance to buy yourself a farm. Ah, you're very welcome to it. I commenced to eat, got more and more greedy as I did so, swallowed whole pieces without chewing them, enjoyed myself in an animal-like way at every mouthful, and tore at the meat like a cannibal. The waitress came over to me again. "'Will you have anything to drink?' she asks, bending down a little towards me. I looked at her. She spoke very low, almost shyly, and dropped her eyes. "'I mean a glass of ale, or whatever you like best, from me, without—that is, if you will.' "'No, many thanks,' I answer. "'Not now. I shall come back another time.' She drew back and sat down at the desk. I could only see her head— what a singular creature! When finished, I made it once for the door. I felt nausea already. The waitress got up. I was afraid to go near the light, afraid to show myself too plainly to the young girl, who never for a moment suspected the depth of my misery, so I wished her a hasty good night, bowed to her, and left. The food commenced to take effect. I suffered much from it and could not keep it down for any length of time. I had to empty my mouth a little at every dark corner I came to. I struggled to master this nausea, which threatened to hollow me out anew, clenched my hands and tried to fight it down, stamped on the pavement, and gulped down furiously whatever sought to come up. All in vain. 
I sprang at last into a doorway, doubled up, head foremost, blinded by the water which gushed from my eyes, and vomited once more. I was seized with bitterness, and wept as I went along the street. I cursed the cruel powers, whoever they might be, that persecuted me so, consigned them to hell's damnation and eternal torments for their petty persecution. There was but little chivalry in fate, really little enough chivalry. One was forced to admit that. I went over to a man, staring into a shop window, and asked him in great haste what, according to his opinion, should one give a man who had been starving for a long time. It was a matter of life and death, I said. He couldn't even keep beef down. I have heard say that milk is a good thing, hot milk, answered the man, astonished. Who is it, by the way, you are asking for? Thanks, thanks, I say. That idea of hot milk might not be half a bad notion, and I go. I entered the first café I came to going along, and asked for some boiled milk. I got the milk, drank it down, hot as it was, swallowed it greedily, every drop, paid for it, and went out again. I took the road home. Now something singular happened. Outside my door, leaning against the lamp-post, and right under the glare of it, stands a person of whom I get a glimpse from a long distance. It is the lady dressed in black again. The same black-clad lady of the other evenings. There could be no mistake about it. She had turned up at the same spot for the fourth time. She is standing perfectly motionless. I find this so peculiar that I involuntarily slacken my pace. At this moment my thoughts are in good working order, but I am much excited. My nerves are irritated by my last meal. I pass her by as usual, am almost at the door and on the point of entering. There I stop. All of a sudden an inspiration seizes me. Without rendering myself any account of it, I turn round and go straight up to the lady, look her in the face, and bow. End of section 8